Welcome back to Misdiagnosed. I'm your host, Caitlin, and this is the second episode. We're continuing the conversation. Before we do that, I wanted to address a couple of things that I realized as I was going through editing the transcript from the first episode. And that is that I had said that I had off the chart levels of antibodies in my system that were causing inflammation, causing anxiety. When I was reading it, I was like, wait a second, that's not actually how the inflammation happened. So I misspoke there and I wanted to correct it because I don't want to provide, even by accident, any misinformation here. And I reserve the right to update anything I say when I realize that I'm wrong, okay? There's no ego here. If I'm wrong, I'm going to tell you. So what was causing the inflammation wasn't the antibodies. The antibodies were there as a result of the virus that was causing the inflammation. And what happens in Epstein-Barr virus, especially in a strain like this, when the virus feeds, which it can feed on your own hormones, it can feed on heavy metals in your system. When it's consuming hormones, which it was because I was consuming progesterone and NP thyroid, which is desiccated pig thyroid containing more hormones, Plus my own hormones were depleted. My cortisol levels were rock bottom because I was in this state of constant fight or flight. It consumes these things as food. It also likes canola oil, gluten, dairy. Dairy has a ton of hormones, so there's no surprise there. Eggs have a ton of hormones. Even if the animals are raised without added hormones, it doesn't mean that animal products don't have hormones. They're animals. They have hormones and they're not human hormones. And so the virus loves to eat those. When the virus eats, it excretes just like we do, right? How else do viruses survive in our system for as long as they can? They eat, they have to. They're alive in a different way than we are. They have an intelligence that is different than what we as humans have. What they excrete is neurotoxin and the neurotoxin is what causes inflammation and that causes anxiety. Just wanted to correct that. This episode, we're gonna be continuing the conversation on not just what the fuck is psychiatry, but what is mental illness itself? And I've consulted a lot of experts indirectly. I didn't call them up or anything, but I've been reading a crap ton of books, watching videos, presentations, listening to the Mad in America podcast. They have a much larger reach than I do here on this show. I'm in an industry that's completely different than the industry where quite a few people do know my name. So I don't yet have the audience that the Mad in America podcast does, but I've been able to listen to experts talk about this. And I know that my ideas are not original. And so as much as I know I'm going to be getting backlash for publishing information like this and for having an opinion like this. Usually when you get backlash, people don't have a reason for giving backlash other than what you're saying is against what I've been taught and what I believe, right? So people have that fear and they get defensive and they want to defend their own beliefs. And I'm expecting that. But as a caveat to that, These people are experts. They are psychiatrists. They are world-renowned for their work in defending people who've been damaged by the industry of psychiatry. And my efforts here on this show are simply to further their efforts in applying my knowledge and growing an audience from my experience as a marketer in my other industry. Not just experience, but success. I want to grow an audience to grow awareness. I don't have any sponsors for this show as of now. Doesn't mean I'll never have sponsors. Who knows? Who knows where the opportunities will lead me? But my goal is to help wake people up and to spread awareness on what's going on because I know I'm not the only one. I was shocked when I was involuntarily hospitalized that people looked at me without a shred of respect 
not everyone. There were some very kind nurses, especially when I started playing their game a little bit and saying the things that they wanted to hear and kind of scratching their backs a little bit. But in some cases, like the last time I was hospitalized, which was July of 2020, it was here in Orlando. I actually had to file a writ of habeas corpus and I worked with an attorney to help me do that. Didn't even know it was possible, but there was so much nonsense going on in that place where they would hand out things like benefits of melatonin to help you sleep, but then when you'd ask for melatonin, the doctor wouldn't prescribe it because they were forcing you to take, as in my case, it was olanzapine, Zyprexa, and I asked for the information on Zyprexa. I want to know what it was, and it's an antipsychotic, and it has a ton of side effects, dangerous, dangerous side effects. I took it for five days just so they would let me out and it did knock me out. So in some ways it helped me sleep and helped me pass the time because, you know, you don't want to be up in the middle of the night anxious and scared in a shitty place like that. So I think in that way it benefited me, but there are a lot of people in there who are being forced to take medication. And I ended up writing a letter to this doctor, the psychiatrist, Dr. G, who was extremely rude and patronizing towards me. He almost seemed to laugh at me when I tried to make my case for why I shouldn't be in there. And he said, you have pressured speech, you have mania, I'm trying to help you. You know, like nothing I said mattered to him. And he talked to my own doctor and I, in finding the notes or requesting the notes from that doctor, I realized that my own general practitioner believed that I had bipolar disorder and that I was refusing to accept my diagnosis as if it were somehow a life sentence. And this was the same doctor who suggested that I had a blood cancer and sent me to an oncologist and ended up with me getting a diagnosis of a myoproliferative neoplasm, a rare blood disorder that now I know and have a lot of hope is not actually cancer, but simply inflammation as a result of the virus that was waging war on my systems. It's been crazy, y'all. I was even in that, after being diagnosed with the myoproliferative neoplasm called essential thrombocytemia where your bone marrow makes too many platelets, I was prescribed the pill form of chemotherapy. And this oncologist, hematologist, had absolutely no concept. It's like the same thing playing out in hematology oncology, as I found was playing out in psychiatry, that he had no concept of what my lifestyle was like, that I was actually doing a lot to prevent blood clots, which were a threat to me, according to him. I was jumping on my trampoline every day. I was doing infrared sauna. I was doing hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I actually own a hyperbaric oxygen tank. It's in my house. It's legit. It was not cheap, but it was cheaper to buy one than it was to do all the therapy that was prescribed and insurance wouldn't cover it. So that's why I bought one. But long story short, in that case, the oncologist just saw the symptom and wanted to give me a drug to correct the symptom and make sure that I didn't have so many platelets. But in doing so, the pill form of chemo, any kind of chemo, it lowers your immune system. It would have made the virus stronger. It's horrific to think about. And I am so grateful to myself. And I think we as a human species should be more grateful to ourselves than we are most of the time. I'm so grateful that I said no to that. And I went against what the doctor's orders were and he had even called in the prescription and I was like no that is dangerous it's gonna make me unable to have children it would affect my fertility and I knew that and he didn't tell me it was chemo when he told me he was gonna prescribe it he said you might read some scary things about it but patients who have been on it have not seen any side effects and I was like that you know of it was 500 milligrams so it wasn't like a huge dose of chemo but over time and that's the thing with these psychiatric drugs as well really any drugs that the FDA approvals don't look at a long-term effect. They don't look at how taking these drugs over a long term can affect your total well-being. 
And that's what we're seeing now. So I've consulted a lot of experts in determining what is mental illness. And one of the physicians that he's published a book, it's called Deadly Psychiatry and Organized Denial. (laughs) And I love the title of that book actually reminds me of the concept of mass psychosis, which I believe is what psychiatry has caused in our society is this mass psychosis, this belief on a mass scale that mental illness is real. And before I go any further with defining mental illness, when I say mental illness isn't real, I'm not saying that suffering or anguish are not real. Those are 100% real experiences, real emotions. What I'm saying is that the concept of mental illness has been constructed to contain the idea that these emotions and experiences are pathological and result from a defect in the brain. And it's not, and we're going to go into that more. So Peter Gotcha, I'm probably butchering that last name. He's a physician who specializes in internal medicine, and he's a professor of clinical research design and analysis at the University of Copenhagen. In his book, published in 2015, called Deadly Psychiatry and Organized Denial, he said, quite often, psychiatrists prefer to talk about a mental disorder rather than a mental illness or disease, which is because psychiatric diagnoses are social constructs. Later in the same book, he says, psychiatrists have blown life into a social construct that is nothing but a variation of normal behavior and have given this construct a name, as if it existed in nature and could attack people. Now, for those of you listening who have maybe heard social construct before and aren't quite sure what it means or maybe need a refresher or maybe you've never heard social construct before, I've got the definition here. I looked it up. Merriam-Webster defines social construct as an idea that has been created and accepted by the people in a society. Now, segue here, something that comes to mind when I think about social construct is my experiences with magic mushrooms. I've been on a trip, a psychedelic trip with magic mushrooms twice. Once in Amsterdam in a clinical setting, and then a second time with a very experienced guide here in Florida. And I did it because I was seeking relief from PTSD symptoms and depression, anxiety. And what was so fascinating about the experience is mushrooms bring up so much emotions to the surface that you're not facing and it feels so, so, so intense. And after you've felt so much heavy emotions, you have this breakthrough where all of it just falls away and you realize that you've been living in containers and that's what social constructs are. Your brain kind of goes all over the place and you realize that you've been living in a container that is of your own creation and that you've been kind of in a matrix and you kind of start to see that. And that's just my way of describing it. I think people who have done a psychedelic journey would concur that you are sitting there and you're just an absolute peace in existence. You don't feel the pressures of self-consciousness where you're thinking, oh man, I feel fat in this outfit or it's too hot out here. I'm sweating. I'm uncomfortable. Like you don't even notice your body. You're noticing everything that you're surrounded by and just like the sheer beauty of existence. body kind of lightens up in a way. You can smell colors and see smells. It's very interesting the way your sensory perception is bent and stretched in the psychedelic experience. And that's when I really realized like, wow, we are in a constructed society. And so I'm tying that into this concept of mental illness being a social construct because it didn't exist in the way that it does a hundred years ago. 
even 50 years ago. Definitely not 250 years ago. I think it was back in the, I want to say 1600s. I could be wrong about this, but we'll do an episode, I'm sure, down the road diving into the witch trials. And variations of this happen throughout history, but specifically with the Salem witch trials, women who were just a little bit weird or were having a breakdown because of oppression or abuse happening towards them by their husbands. Maybe they were just exasperated by the mistreatment that they were experiencing in their community. And they started to react to it. They were being labeled as witches and burned at the stake. They were the ones being labeled mentally ill when the people who were paranoid and scared were the ones who should have been labeled, at least by our standards, as mentally ill. Like we look back at it and think, oh, that'll never happen today, but it is happening today. When people start to behave erratically or in a way that makes others uncomfortable, they are told to go to the psychiatrist, forced to go to the psychiatrist, taken, in my case, against her will to the hospital and left there told that there's something wrong with her or them that they're going to have to deal with for the rest of their lives and that creates a stigma for several years i think it's really started to fall away in the last six months as i've really gotten a handle on what's been happening and seen a dissolution of all of my symptoms including the lifelong anxiety that i was never medicated for before i just thought that's just the way i was you know and it was normal i thought the headaches and the stomach aches were normal all the time I didn't know that it wasn't normal until they went away. And I was like, this is what living is like, you know? It took me a while to stop feeling and let go of the shame because I could tell that certain members of my family didn't respect me based on what had happened. And they seemed to have this like fear and avoidance towards me and mistrust, distrust. But it took me a while to accept that that was their reaction, right? They had a reaction too to the changes that were happening in my life. I had a reaction, they had a reaction, and they have to deal with their reaction. And their reaction is not my responsibility. There's situations in my family where I was even blamed for the feelings of other family members, for the fact that they went to counseling. I was blamed. I went to counseling because of you. You're welcome. <laughs> Isn't that what I say now, you know, as a comedian? Oh, I didn't mention that. I'm a comedian. So every now and then you'll get a little taste of my humor and sharing this information with you guys. But yeah, going to counseling is a good thing when you get to face your issues and talk them out with someone who knows what they're doing. That's, I think, the hardest part is finding a counselor or a therapist who actually knows what they're doing, who doesn't want to just slap you with a label. And I've been to counselors before where they were slapping me with labels and clearly did not know what they were doing and were just another worshiper at the foot of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So this stigma results when you get diagnosed with these mental illnesses and labels. And if you've been involuntarily hospitalized, that kind of goes on your record. I mean, I was Baker in the state of Florida twice. And as a result, not that I have any desire to, but I cannot legally purchase a firearm. I almost lost, actually I did lose my driver's license for a short period of time and I was living overseas so it really didn't bother me, I didn't need my driver's license. When I came back I had to take the driver's test three times in a row and prove that I was mentally competent and I had to get a pill-pushing psychiatrist to put in writing that there was no reason why I couldn't drive. Things happen to a person that affect their lives if they get diagnosed with these mental illnesses, they don't actually exist. So anyway, a little bit of segue on the idea of social construct and the stigma that comes with mental illnesses. So we're going to get back into defining mental illness. Chuck Ruby is a PhD, a psychologist and director of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry called ICEP. In the April 2018 issue of the ICEP's newsletter, 
He said the conventional mental health industry goes to great lengths in an attempt to perpetuate the myth of mental illness. The problems we've dubbed mental illnesses are about inter and intrapersonal, spiritual, existential, economic, and political matters, not real disease. Dr. Peter Bregan, I mentioned him in episode one. He's the author of a book called Toxic Psychiatry. He was on the Coast to Coast AM radio show on February 9th, back in 2015. And Dr. Bregan says there is no known physical connection to any psychiatric disorder. There is no genetically determined cause. It's all drug company propaganda because the pharmaceutical industry with its billions of advertising dollars and the medical industry thinks you're more likely to take drugs if you think you have a genetic or biological disease. He's not alone in having these opinions, okay? British psychiatrist Joanna Moncrief, she said this in a lecture at the University of New England in February of 2013. There is just absolutely no evidence that anyone with any mental disorder has a chemical imbalance of any sort. Absolutely none. And the truth is, biologically normal people can behave or think in an infinite number of ways. But what happens is only a very narrow window of that behavior or thinking is acceptable to people in our society or culture. And then what happens is that people, including psychiatrists, assume without any proof that any thinking or behavior outside what is socially acceptable in a society has to be caused by a biological abnormality. And this is false. It's an unfounded assumption, and it results in people who think or do things others dislike being thought to have biological problems when they don't. And I can remember my mom looking at me and saying, something is wrong with your mind. No, mom, I'm going through a divorce. And this is how I'm reacting to it. And now I don't have a virus. I don't know how long it took for the virus to really take hold. I can remember that my hospitalization was in October of 2018. And I first felt a profound depression and anxiety. Like, keep me up at night anxiety set in in May of the following year. So that's when something was really wrong. I had moved past the reaction that got labeled as bipolar and schizophrenic and all that stuff to this profound sense of depression and overwhelming fear and anxiety that would attack me all hours of the day. There was never a time where I felt good or safe or happy or calm. There's always this sense of something is wrong. Something is very, very wrong. And a big part of my depression was a belief that I was never going to feel good again and that that feeling of anxiety was never going to go away. And I believed that I was stuck like that, that I was going to have to learn how to deal with it. I just could not believe that things were going to be okay because I had no idea what was wrong and I had started to blame myself. And I had feelings of religious persecution constantly where I believed that Satan was taunting me and that God hated me so much that I was being punished before I would die and go to hell, right? I was being punished on earth. And I had no idea that this was, you know, delusional because it felt so real to me. And I thought I would just have to deal with it. And that's why I became suicidal because I was like, I can't live like this. There was even a time where I was starting to have auditory hallucinations. And I don't know if that was a result of the Xanax use or not, but auditory hallucinations where I was sitting on the couch and I kid you not, I could hear the Jeopardy theme song playing constantly. And if it wasn't the Jeopardy theme song, it was part of In the Jungle, The Mighty Jungle, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. That song was just playing constantly. And I swear Auditory hallucinations, obviously they're hallucinations, they're not real, but they sound real. Nobody else can hear the music, you can hear the music. And it was bizarre. And I want to be clear when I say biological problems, I'm talking about something that is genetically wrong or chemically wrong with your body or brain, like a defect. 
for which you would need a drug or some kind of insane psychiatric treatment like electroshock therapy or lobotomy to correct. I'm not talking about viruses like the one that I had, which was Epstein-Barr, and I'm not talking about bacteria like mycoplasma pneumonia, which is also what I had. I'm not talking about those things wreaking havoc on your brain, causing inflammation and symptoms that then get labeled as psychiatric disorders. Stress is the number one underlying cause of mental disorders, so-called, because stress leads to a lowered immune system that allows viruses to continue living in our bodies. And the viruses eat the crap food we eat when we're stressed. It loves Taco Bell, loves Pizza Hut. I ate pretty much nothing, and I am not exaggerating, pretty much nothing but Taco Bell and Pizza Hut for probably six months in 2021. Viruses love anything with hormones in it. So the more meat and cheese we eat, trying to keep the carbs out, the more we're actually feeding the viruses, which eating those things is fine if you're not massively stressed and not eating them all the time and your immune system is strong. But all that's different from what psychiatry has been trying to convince us of and is desperate for us to believe that mental disorders are caused by a defect in the brain, this biochemical imbalance theory. This lie, this completely unproven theory, there's no proof for this that you have a biochemical imbalance in your brain that causes the depression, the anxiety, the ADHD, whatever it is, schizophrenia. My doctors told me that I've probably had bipolar my whole life, but it just didn't show itself. I just call bullshit on that. It makes no sense because one does not just suddenly come down with bipolar disorder. If you experience sudden symptoms of a mental disorder, and I keep saying so-called, but mental disorders were literally invented. If you have a sudden occurrence, something is happening outside of you, trauma, or something is happening biologically inside of you that the mental disorder is not the disorder itself, it's not a disease itself, it's a symptom of something happening, something physiological that the doctors are not aware of and don't even bother to look for. I went to a functional medicine doctor here in town near Winter Park and was tested for all these hormonal imbalances. Thank God that my holistic psychiatrist from Amen Clinics, and I don't work for them, I just I really appreciate the knowledge that I gleaned from that experience, even though at least half of it was also wrong, but being able to put the pieces together and sort it out has been and extremely valuable. It was that psychiatrist that had me tested for the Epstein-Barr and mycoplasma pneumonia and a whole bunch of other viruses and those ones came back with sky-high levels of antibodies, extremely off-the-chart levels of blood histamines and other inflammation marker. This functional medicine MD near me didn't test for any of that stuff. It was because I had just gotten blood work from my psychiatrist that I knew that. So imagine if I hadn't had that information and she would have put me on this progesterone and all this stuff and I would she wouldn't have been even aware of the virus's existence. And her course of action was, hey, we're going to correct your gut issues. We're going to get your gut in shape and then we're going to go after your thyroid and then we're going to go after the virus. Well, if the virus is the root cause of the thyroid and the gut issues, which it was, then why go after it third? Shouldn't it be the first thing if there's an active virus? Go after it first. And I remember thinking that when I was on the phone with her when she told me that we would go after the virus after we corrected the thyroid. And the thing is, you're not correcting anything if you're taking on hormones and steroids, which is what NP thyroid is. And even if it's bioidentical progesterone from yams or whatever, it's not human hormones that your body produced. So it's not helping your body at all. It's just covering up a problem. And that's exactly what it was. So when you falsely blame biological abnormalities for behavior or thinking that you dislike, that's how we create the myth of mental illness. So in my case, people didn't like the videos I was posting. People didn't like the energy that I was putting out into the universe and things that I was saying because either A, they didn't agree with it 
so they disagree with it it made them uncomfortable and it was unlike anything that they had ever seen from me before they were afraid and thought oh we haven't seen her act like this before mainly because i didn't share my true feelings with them i never told anybody that i really wasn't attracted to my husband because i was internalizing all of that and thinking that it was my fault that i wasn't attracted there was something wrong with me internally and what's crazy is in my research i found that the dsm has a whole list of sexual disorders where if you're not into having sex that's a disorder if you're not I can't think of them right now. I know we're going to have an episode on that, but there's a whole section of the DSM for sexual disorders that they believe are mental. And in a way, they kind of are. I mean, they have to do with your emotions. And a lot of times physiologically, there are underlying causes for these so-called disorders, but it's not a disease. And it's certainly not anything wrong with your brain if you're just not attracted to your husband. In my case, I was on the birth control pill before I got married. And I had no idea that that affects your pheromones and how you are attracted to people and who's attracted to you. That makes a difference. If you're taking all these artificial hormones that are affecting your estrogen and progesterone levels artificially, you can literally fall in love with the wrong person and convince yourself that you're attracted to someone when you're not. That's exactly what happened. It was shortly after I had started taking the birth control pill that I first found myself attracted to my now ex-husband when we had been friends for six months and I had absolutely no attraction to him whatsoever. He was a great friend. I liked hanging out with him, but I was not physically attracted to him at all. And it was after I stopped taking the birth control pill in 2013 that I noticed a downturn in my desire, so to speak. And I started taking all these herbs like ashwagandha, thinking that it was my fault, that something was wrong with me hormonally. I had to balance things out after being on the pill that, you know, once I did that, I would find myself attracted to him again and it never really came back. And so it spent a lot of time just trying to get myself to feel something that I just couldn't feel. And the right thing to do in that situation would have been to admit that to myself, but I just simply was not aware of what I was feeling. I wasn't allowing myself to feel the feelings. When you get married and tell someone you're never going to leave them, you never leave them, right? That's what I thought was the right thing to do, and that's the way we're taught. And having grown up in that Christian background, divorce was not the answer, right? You want to try to stay together and make it work. Well, that can be toxic, and in our case, it was. People are thought of as mentally ill or disordered only when their thinking, emotions, or behavior is going against what other people who think of themselves as normal consider acceptable. And just like how they got rid of homosexuality as an official mental disorder back in the early 70s, the fact that mental disorders can be created or eliminated by having a vote shows that they're more like criminal laws than diseases. Mental illness is not an illness like any other illness, which is something that even political figures have announced because unlike physical disease where there are physical facts to deal with, mental illness or disorders cannot be demonstrated to exist with anything physical. Unlike physical disease, mental illnesses or disorders are a question of values. What's right and wrong, appropriate or inappropriate, and in the case of homosexuality, at one time it seemed so weird and impossible to understand that it was necessary to invoke this concept of mental disease, illness, or disorder, just to explain it. And just like homosexuality is not a result of a biological abnormality, the rest of today's so-called mental illnesses are not either. Suppose that 
biological, biochemical imbalances, abnormalities in the brain were responsible for homosexuality or any other so-called mental disorder now or in the past. If they were, we wouldn't call them illnesses or disorders if society accepted those differences, right? The defining characteristic of any mental disorder is disapproval. So people disapproved of the way I was conducting myself following my divorce. They disapproved of how elated I was and how I acted out in freedom and doing things that were not normal according to them, right? They disapproved of my behavior, and so they thought I had a mental disorder. They thought there was something was wrong with my brain that was causing me to be that happy that I was getting divorced. They had absolutely no idea how happy I was to be set free from a marriage that I thought I was going to have to live with forever. It's kind of hard to explain. Basically, it felt like my life was over. Realizing that I had married this person and that I really truly believed that walking away was not an option. And it just goes to show you how powerful belief is. Walking away in my mind was not an option. Then the quest became not necessarily making it work, but surviving. And it sucks the life out of you. It sucks the energy out of you. This is no way to live. And I can see the ways now and having developed as a person, I can see the ways now that I was abandoning myself and putting others before me, not acknowledging my own needs, not even being aware that I had needs, simply trying to find ways to meet others' needs and getting their approval and keeping them comfortable at my own expense. And I think that added a lot to my stress levels and I didn't have any awareness of it. I can remember in March of 2018, this is six months before my husband left, getting my blood tested for the first time and seeing the high platelets and my doctor asking me whether there was anything emotional about people going on at home, which she knew led to higher platelet counts. I denied it because I literally thought there was nothing wrong, even though there was definitely emotional about people. I didn't recognize it. And so my own ignorance of my own emotional state at that time led me down the road of getting my blood tested, not taking care of the stress because I still didn't recognize it, didn't want to face it, that stress, that fight or flight constantly going up and up and up. My platelet count continued to stay high and it led to me getting a bone marrow biopsy and the testing said it supported the diagnosis of this rare blood cancer. And recently seeing that paperwork, I realized the language is extremely vague and knowing the amount of information that they did not have in making that diagnosis, this was back in October of 2019, I now feel very confident that the next time I get my platelets tested, which I'm gonna wait because getting so much blood drawn all the time is really bad for your immune system. I was getting it tested every three months, which is actually making things worse, not better. So now that I'm giving my body the chance to heal and really taking the stress head on, I am very optimistic that I will see normal platelet levels the next time I get it tested. And I believe that, and there's so much power in belief. Even just looking at my own history and seeing how when I believed that I had personality disorders, like on top of personality disorders, when I thought I had ADHD, when I thought I had panic disorder, when I thought I had PTSD, all these things. I think if there's any real mental disorders, it's definitely PTSD, but it's still not a problem with the brain biochemically. It's emotions and our emotions are what shift things and we don't know how to handle the emotions. Like that's where they originate, the emotions and the shock and those things that we oftentimes don't even have words to describe because we'd never experienced them before. We have no point of reference to be able to cope with those things. That's the originator of PTSD, not a biochemical imbalance or a defect in your brain. 
and those things can be healed, which is not what we're being told. We're being told we have to be on antidepressants forever, antipsychotics. A lot of people with PTSD are prescribed antipsychotics. So was I. It's killing us slowly, sometimes a lot faster. Some people commit suicide because they're on antidepressants. And there's a lot of studies that show that violence and suicidal behavior is a side effect of antidepressants. It's insane. No pun intended. It really is. Like These drugs are making people insane. So circling back, I want to ask the question, why do we do this? Why do we make these assumptions that these disliked behaviors must be caused by a biological abnormality. One reason is we don't know the real reasons. And I just touched on this. We don't know the reasons why we have these thoughts, emotions, or behaviors that we dislike. We see them in others. We're like, something is wrong with that person. We have no idea what's going on with them. When we don't understand the real reasons, we create myths to provide an explanation. It makes us feel more comfortable. So in centuries past, people relied on myths about demon possession and evil spirits to provide an explanation to themselves for the unacceptable behavior and thinking. Like the witch trials, isn't it crazier for a dude to be so afraid or paranoid that their neighbor and all of her female friends are witches? Wouldn't that be, by today's terms, more mentally ill than those poor women who are burned at the stake because of someone else's insanity? So the way I'm seeing it is instead of believing in evil spirits or demon possession, which would be seen as mental illness today, we now believe in mental illness that our brains have biochemical imbalances that can't be proven but they're there there's no way to test it but it's there you know we're believing in something else is not real to make ourselves more comfortable rather than acknowledging our own ignorance of our emotions and thinking and the reasons that we're acting the way we are and a lot of that stuff that is out there now that I've been actually paying more attention to instead of dismissing like I used to learning about our emotions, learning about frequencies and vibration and how we are multidimensional beings. You know, we don't just exist in this physical universe. There's part of us, like we're ghosts in the machine, right? We're not physical bodies that are alive, right? We are spiritual beings living inside bodies. It's totally different than the way our society operates. Even having grown up in a Christian background, if I were to talk to people about energy centers and frequency and vibration to people in church environments, they would look at me like I was worshiping Satan somehow or on the wrong path or studying witchcraft or something like that. And it's not like that. There's just simply, I say simply, but it's not really simple. There's more to our existence than we were told. And I mentioned Thomas Zaz in the last episode briefly. He's a psychiatry professor, sorry, was. He has passed away, may rest in peace. He has a book called The Second Sin. It was published in 1973. He says that trying to eliminate a mental illness by having a psychiatrist work on your brain is like trying to eliminate cigarette commercials from television by having a TV repairman work on your TV set. Looking for biological causes of mental disorders is like looking for electronic causes of bad television programs. I love that analogy because it's true. I mean, our emotions and experiences are not something that really exists in our brain. It's kind of part of what I was just saying. Our existence is so much more multidimensional than this physical body. And that's the problem is these doctors are trying to find a physical, three-dimensional, very flat cause for something that is way more complicated than that. Emotions and our subjective human experience is so much more complicated. 
that's a good place to stop. In the next episode, though, just as a little cliffhanger, we're going to go into a lot more detail of exactly how the industry of mental health, particularly psychiatry and the pharmaceutical drug companies that manufacture these drugs, have been manufacturing mental illness itself. Really exciting stuff. Thank you for tuning in to Misdiagnosed. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to Misdiagnosed. If this show has helped you in any way, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Sharing your experience will help others who are lost in the darkness find their own way out of the science of lies. Please note that while I may go in-depth into medical topics and have acquired substantial medical knowledge, I am not a medical doctor. I'm a researcher. I'm a messenger of hope for other survivors of industrialized psychiatry. Because of how toxic psychiatric drugs are, it can be extremely dangerous, even life-threatening, to suddenly stop taking certain drugs. This is especially true for antidepressants, antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. The longer you've taken the drug, the more dangerous withdrawal can be. If you want to heal your brain and soul naturally, the way it was designed to do, please seek the help of a compassionate and patient-centered physician to start the process of withdrawing from them as safely as possible. It will take time for your brain to reacclimate to life without the drugs, and there are doctors out there who will support you in your quest to save your brain. Never give up. You can heal.